1: Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co host, Don Chisholm. We join this podcast already in progress. And tonight, we're going to talk about murder hobos. <laughs> They're outside your house right now, staring in your windows at you, and you better be careful, and you better be aware, and you better be armed, because they're everywhere. Murder hobos. Or at least they're everywhere if you're playing a role-playing game. Because the term murder hobo is a term that has been popping up a lot recently, and so we thought we'd discuss it and the whole idea of morality in role-playing games. So now that we've got the audience thoroughly confused on, what's a murder hobo? (laughs)
0: Well, it's... It's a hard thing to to define. If, if you look it up, there's a few different definitions, but it essentially refers to, and we've talked about this before, the, the old-school D&D-style role-playing game where a group of adventurers who are just wanderers with no connection to anything basically show up, murder a bunch of monsters in their house, take all their gold, and then use it to buy better stuff.
1: Yep, exactly. Murder hobos. Yep, they, they wander the landscape with no connection to anything and they alter economies, they alter societies and they generally cause a lot of chaos. And they're for the most part a gamerism because real societies in human history and even right now don't exactly look kindly on, you know, heavily armed wanderers wandering in and causing trouble. We usually yeah. call those the bad guys.
0: Yeah. It depends where though. Sometimes they're a, uh, we, we, we refer to them as allied freedom fighters, but Oh, that's true that's very true and it's 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 one of them things i'm gonna gonna argue that it's not limited to role-playing games at least not anymore
1: Mm, well role-playing games have influenced popular culture but actually well here if we want to go back okay let's let's take a little trip back through time different cultures have had this idea like there is the idea of the knight errant of course, mm-hmm. in uh, European history, uh, the idea of this wandering knight who goes around, although I have strong suspicions that that was more of a, a, a romantic, poetic fantasy creation, even in uh, old medieval literature, than it was something that actually happened. You, you mean like old literature didn't actually happen? Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Bum, bum. Um, I mean, yes. I mean, we did have bands of people wandering around, killing people, taking their stuff. We called them Vikings. Yeah. The, they did exist, but they were specific parties, war parties when they did exist, that were going out specifically to do that job. And they did have a home. They just weren't at that home. You know, they were out pillaging and raping and do, collecting. That was kind of their occupation. Yeah, we we had a bunch. We had Vikings. We had Visigoths. We had the Mongols. Mm-hmm, exactly. So they've always existed. But the idea that people within a stable society are wandering around like that, like the Knights, for example, eh, sort of. I mean, you get the closest I can think to, of really in history was kind of maybe the Ronin from Japanese history. But even then, they didn't really tend to wander very long. They were just kind of people who'd been kicked out by their boss and were just looking for a new home. And eventually, they'd either become bandits or they'd actually find a new place to stay,
0: and that would be that. Yeah, a lot of them ended up uh, in real life, just mm-hmm. they became farmers like everybody else. Yeah, pretty much, because it's better
1: than wandering around. This is this is something that I think is kind of lost, maybe on especially on modern people, that just how hard it is to survive wandering around. Like, <laughs> there's a reason why we don't live in nomadic communities or even as even as small groups
0: wandering the landscape. It's because it can be kind of hard to survive. Yeah, there's that. There's also, um, probably in the last 200 years or so, there's not many places you can wander around that somebody doesn't already claim to be their own. Exactly, and you're going to get into a little bit of trouble that way. Yeah, because they're going to send out their roving bands of, like, thugs and murderers to take care of you.
1: This is exactly right. Nobody feels comfortable, you know, with a bunch of heavily armed people showing up at their, you know, remote doorstep in the middle of the night. It just almost never goes well. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no it does not
1: <laughs> and then you know and then players wonder what why are they so worried what's wrong we're nice guys it's like do you, have you looked at yourselves in the mirror recently yeah I've... Uh, so and but it goes back to game that morality uh issue going back to morality is the idea that um the player characters yeah are basically combat machines that's what they are so in a weird hmm. way asking players who are these wandering combat machines to uh to role play and to not, you know, kill stuff and to focus on how they could, you know, baby build a town church or something like that or get involved in the local community is a little bit like ask, asking a Russian T-38 tank to do the same thing. The Ogre series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well yeah, there is that. But ogres didn't exactly settle down either. No, they did not. <laughs> ogres just wander the landscape this is a old game by steve jackson games by the way folks uh ogre look it up it's in the show notes um but but again so why would we expect player characters to do something different
0: yeah i think what what you're you're hitting on mm-hmm. is why this episode is probably looking like a history episode but it's going to be a how-to episode i think in the end how to become wandering bands of thugs and murderers? Well, no, it's, it's, it's like a writing advice mm, mm. because what happens when you get to like, say Dungeons and Dragons, the first role-playing game, really. Yeah. 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 Uh, the people who were participating mm-hmm. were well-versed in the source material. Yes. They read sword and sorcery. Uh, a lot of them actually knew like medieval history and such. Mm-hmm. And when they would play and, and. Anybody who's listened to this show for a while knows I have an unhealthy obsession with the uh, white box D&D. Yes, you do. When you read articles and reports and zines of that from the time, people, the games did have a society. It was in place because everybody was coming in with this preconception of what a D&D kind of world looks like. And all of the world building had already been done by the other authors and historians they were familiar with. Mm-hmm. So the characters would sort of exist in this nebulous spaces as wandering vagrants throughout the kingdom. But there was a little more context. A lot of them would have a world of its own. It was, uh, we've mentioned this before, the earliest days, there weren't just dungeons littering the landscape. A lot of the early campaigns would have a single dungeon that groups would revisit. Right, and as part of that, they would have a very finite number of settlements that related to to the 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 world, to the dungeon, to the mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening when you get like your second generation of gamers who come into it strictly through the game, mm-hmm. you lose some of that uh, circumstance or control because they're looking at it strictly from the game context. Oh, hold on a sec. So, oh. just to, just to rewind here a sec. So, I, this just suddenly occurred to
1: me as you're saying. So, in a weird way, first generation role playing was almost an act of
0: fan fiction. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. That so it mm-hmm. it literally because again, if you look at like your early D and D and a lot of your earliest role playing games, they were not shy about we'll say borrowing things mm-hmm. from uh, established stories and such. Just look at the first monster manual. Yeah, or the first, first edition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the first um even in White Box when you get to the wilderness encounter tables. They mm. have things like sandworms and freemen and things cribbed right from other story. No stats or nothing, because that mm-hmm. was beyond the organizational concepts of early gaming. But yeah, there's tons of references to that. It's it's weird to see now because it's just assumed. Mm-hmm. Like, like if I was running, say, oh geez, I don't know if I was running like a Star Trek game Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, and some of you will get this joke slash reference. And all of a sudden the X-Men show up on the bridge of the Enterprise. (gasps) Yeah. A lot of people that would be their reaction. They'd be freaked out because it's like you're like mixing like that's a Marvel property and and Star Trek is paramount and they'd never have a crossover because and listen it doesn't count because in the Marvel universe at this stage, that blah 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 the etc etc set. Right, yeah. The earliest days of gaming, nah no, that stuff happened all the time and nobody bat yeah. an eyelash because you were just You were just throwing in what you thought was cool, and the 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 rules of it, the conceptual rules, were just understood by all the participants because they all partook of the same entertainment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, There's actually a reference. uh,
1: There was a book for the first, for no, for third edition champions called Strike Force. It was written by a guy named Aaron Alston. Who would go on to be a somewhat successful game designer and uh, writer and uh, passed away a few years ago. But, um, and in it, he talks about the strike force campaign and they give the history. It's basically like it's this book source book is basically the source book for his campaign. Like, right? yeah. and they were effectively this hybrid between the Avengers and the X-Men. Okay. And in it, actually, one of the things I always found amusing is there's a sec- section about this epic s- campaign called the war stars campaign. Uh-huh. okay keep in mind this was you know from the early 80s where it's if you read it effectively he, he's he's trying to dance around it a tiny bit but basically the um the Cylons from Battlestar Galactica basically invade the earth mm-hmm. and it's basically a Battlestar Galactica like believe that it's not Star Wars it's Battlestar Galactica crossover with his campaign and so they end up fighting like Cylon base stars and all this other stuff it's like uh, okay, sure. Why not? But, and you're right, in a weird way, that, what I think, but was kind of normal back in the day. Like, yeah, back I, in the 80s, we would do stuff like that all the time. We'd just throw in shit from our favorite pop culture references, and everyone would laugh and enjoy it,
0: and on we'd go. I, well, it was the standard. I'm thinking um, the original Battletech. Mm-hmm has references to the bonsai institute designing all kinds of like high-tech equipment and when you see the symbol it's like you guys aren't even pretending at this point
1: no they're not no no and actually there's somewhere in there where if you actually read it the leader of team bonsai mysteriously popped up in a machine one day Mm -hmm. and basically started in in the he apparently came from somewhere in the past it's like uh (laughs) uh-huh okay sure uh, but yeah th- that that was that was the shit now these days you get in trouble because of course ip and all that stuff but back in those days we didn't care everything was just a giant piece of fan fiction connected with your favorite media that you enjoyed back in the day
0: yeah it was it was that and it was the idea that especially for um for gaming nobody was going to see it exactly it was like... just something that happened between you and your friends yeah and, and even if for for the publishers like um and again We've gotten into this in more detail, but an A-list role-playing game back like when we're talking late 70s, early 80s, uh, an A-list game might sell like, say, 10 or 20,000 copies. Which a is good, not bad. Well, for the day, a good B-list game from that day mm-hmm. would probably sell like two to 5,000 copies, mm-hmm. which is not very much. And then if I'm ripping off, you know, like some big property the owners are likely never going to see it just because gaming was a niche hobby at that time. Mm-hmm. And the production numbers for things were so small, the likelihood of somebody who's going to complain running into it was really small.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very small. Very true. Whereas uh, today it's a, today what will happen is it'll get mentioned all over the internet in any discussion groups. mm it'll pop up and eventually someone who's going to care will notice not always yeah. but but the, but the odds are much greater that it's going to happen that that was one of the advantages of how disconnected things were back in the day <laughs> uh no there i mean there, there is a certain wild freedom that goes with it no yeah. question but anyway so but back to your point so yeah the so early games were effectively uh fan fiction so you already understood the context like yep. you were playing a lord of the rings game okay this is middle earth Got it, got it, and we go from there. Or we're, we're playing a Middle-Earth Ripoff, and that's okay, got it, we go from there. Yeah. But the second generation role-playing games, though, people just looked at the the rules and such, which are all these, like, combat stuff. And so people were thinking, oh, well, I guess this game is just settled around combat and people fighting
0: each other. Yeah, it, it was that, and it was, um, the mentality changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that goes back and forth with like gaming fandom Mm -hmm. that early people would play just to play. Yeah. And that was why if you look at say, especially D and D earlier versions of it only went up to level 10 because it was assumed Mm -hmm. that it took forever to get there. You weren't playing specifically to level up and the fatality like numbers were so high getting to level five was an achievement. Yes, yeah. That again, it was it was part of the function of the world. People didn't complain if their character died off. This is why you had things like uh poison.
1: Mm-hmm. You fail
0: your save, you just die. Whereas when you get to like the late '80s, that becomes kind of a point of contention for fans. Partly because you're seeing that shift over to kind of more story oriented stuff, and that's a real bummer if the hero just alpha th- dead right well hold on a sec
1: wasn't there an idea in um original D for the most part the idea that your character was doing this to amass wealth so that they could basically
0: become a lord and settle down ah, that I see. Wasn't, wasn't that a big part of it it is but now you're getting to the crux of the change-up that kind of gets you into the realm of the murder hobo mm-hmm. because everybody knew conan Mm-hmm. Essentially, yeah. essentially what was happening is it wasn't necessarily the plan that your character would build up and build a kingdom but because that's what a lot of the heroes in the classic stories did it mm-hmm. was a function of the game Yeah, and again the idea would be that if my character got to that level and started my own minor kingdom the game would shift to more of a political game that the focus was it was more on the setting than it was the characters, as at least compared to, say, like a, a modern game, a current one. Mm-hmm. And that was why if you read a lot of them, even going into the AD&D days, uh, there's a lot of discussion about when your character becomes a lord and establishes their kingdom, that they retire and that you start playing other members of that kingdom or other members of the court.
1: Right. So effectively... Your, the reason they didn't need more than level 10 is by then your character is like usually had enough they're they're like okay yeah I've had enough of this I'm gonna retire now and you would start playing that character's son or daughter or you know yeah. bastard or whatever I mean you know that that would be they would go on from there yeah or almost
0: like jojo's bizarre adventure well kind of except that for d and d the shift would uh a lot of times the game would then become like a resource management game mm-hmm that and you'll you'll see that that when they did like uh, the companion rules for old school d and d, there's a supplement for a d d d I can't remember. Uh, and when you get to later versions like third edition, this is kind of a built in feature. Mm-hmm. There's this concept of the 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 ebb and flow of the kingdom itself, right? Of like the gathering of wealth and how much do I tax the peasants and are there uprisings and what if a disaster strikes and how much crop can we actually grow? Can we feed these? And the, and it was again, cause the focus wasn't necessarily, at least in the earliest days on the character progressing early D and D, despite uh, the mechanics emphasis, mm-hmm. there was a lot of narrativist attitude that came out of it. Mm-hmm. And early games had that, even though they didn't look like what we would consider a nervous game mechanically, because everybody understood the nature of these stories, you were more playing the story than just the character. Right, yeah. And that would be another reason why in early D&D, uh, players would run more than one character. Sometimes like a lot more than one character. Yeah, that was pretty normal, Yeah. And that's also why they had mass
1: combat rules, for example, because yep. you would need them because you had vassals and sometimes
0: you had a whole army, actually, that you could actually throw at opponents. Yep. And those those come out really quick because White Box d d comes out of Chainmail, which was a war game. Mm-hmm. During the time of the White Box game, they did, oh, what the hell was it? Uh, Swords and Spells, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. It's the war game version of DD, the straight up war game version. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah, it comes out right for, like, the original white box. And then they add the, uh, oh, shoot, the War Machine for ad and d f- And then the Companion Rules for basic D&D have, like, Mass Combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, third Edition, they brought back Chainmail as a miniatures war game that's based off of Third Edition D&D. Right, right.
1: Wow. You know, I have to say that, in my gaming experience, and I did play with many groups, and try. I don't think I ever, ever in my entire gaming experience, encountered a group that actually ever used those rules. Every group that I was involved with, or even saw, or even heard of, was doing basic questing fantasy. Like they were, it was all ultimately the Fellowship of the rings in some yeah. version thereof bunch of murder hobos going around (laughs) and um, doing their questing thing and amassing gold and getting more and more powerful and then using that gold to buy more powerful magic items and leveling up and doing whatever they needed to but no one actually bothered to say you know let's just stay here and build a kingdom like that literally and most of the gms that i knew wouldn't know what to do if the players did do that right like what would you do it's like i guess we could turn into a resource management game i've never considered that and I bet that's true today. It may be doubly true today that when you have people going through all these adventures and such, or whether they're homemade or where they buy them online, that doesn't like having a kingdom. would get in the way of doing that. Yeah. Cause you want your characters poor and desperate. And then they have a motivation to constantly go out and risk their lives and adventure and not just stay home and, um, uh, play with their dogs and, and their kids. Like why wouldn't, you know, that that's one of the ways where player characters at some point became entirely detached, maybe out of just practicality, from the setting. Like, they're almost all isekai stories, right? They're almost all the yeah. player characters get dumped in this setting where, it, where they have no attachment to, and then just proceed to wander around inside said setting doing what player characters do.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And again, that's where... What ends up happening, and D&D is a good example. It, it, other games do it, but because D&D has been around so long with so many permutations, you can see it. Because mm-hmm. uh, what happens is when you get to the second generation of gamers, a lot of them are coming into the game as the game. Mm-hmm. They don't have that background. And this is where your idea of like the murder hobo comes in. It It, it gets exactly like you're saying, that the characters are detached from the setting because... That's where the mechanics put the focus. That's where the participants put the focus, even though the intent wasn't necessarily to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's why when you get to later editions, you'll see different mechanics and ideas come out to kind of either curtail or focus that. Mm -hmm. So you get that idea, like one of the things I thought interesting about third edition, there's actual rules for how towns work. And one of the things that you, you determine... For each town is basically their 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 lucid their their liquidity, mm-hmm. like how much loose cash there is. So if players have like the legendary sword of like Oogie Boogie, and the book says it sells for a million gold, the town might not be big enough that anyone can scrape together a million gold to buy that thing. Yeah, yeah, and it creates this idea. Again, it makes the world more mm-hmm. tangible to make the players like the characters have to deal with it. Right, yeah. Uh, there's a thing that kind of hints at that when you got to the um, the companion rules for old-school, like, basic D&D, mm-hmm. where they talk about, for your kingdoms, there's ways to determine their, their output, like, how much are they producing, right. how much resource, how much wealth, how much food, the population numbers, how are they expanding, are they contracting? And it's interesting when they add that to see when you get to the costs for things, like how much does it cost for a suit of armor? Now you can weigh that against the production of this kingdom. Mm -hmm. You really do start to get the sense that the, the player characters, at least the way they work in most campaigns, really are screwing up the universe. Yeah. And just prior to that, you would have these discussions... Uh, getting at what you're getting at the, how do you mm-hmm. keep the players like poor and wanting to adventure? Cause people would crunch the numbers and the gold you would haul out of the average dungeon would destroy the economy of most of the kingdoms. Yep. Cause, cause it, it's, it's that much compared to what the, uh, the gross domestic product for this like country yeah. would be. And it's that idea that a lot of that sort of thing was kind of understood by the first generation gamers Mm -hmm. it got dropped because of functionality by the second gen. And when you get to the third gen, they're starting to ask those kind of, um, I guess you say difficult questions like, well, if the richest guy in town is the merchant and he has a till equivalent of about 200 gold Mm -hmm. and we come out of this dungeon with 38,000 gold pieces, how does that change stuff? Well, now it costs 450 gold for a loaf of bread. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Which again, the guys playing in the beginning, because a lot of them again were into like history and such, and especially medieval history, had an awareness of how that worked. Mm-hmm. They would kind of uh, mitigate it. So if the players couldn't haul all the gold out of the dungeon and then it mm-hmm. disappeared when they came back to get more of it, they didn't whine and moan. Hey, be able to get what about my XP? It was just yeah. under. It was understood that that's how this sort of thing works. Right. Whereas again, the second generation not so much because they figured we murdered the guy, we should be able to take all his shit. And yeah. then the third, the third generation wondering, well, what is happening when we murder all of these guys and take all of their shit? How does that? So they kind of reverse engineer where you were in the uh, in the earliest days.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. And I, well, that's why the bag of holding was created, right? Because no one yeah. could actually carry all that gold. Right. They'd never be able to get it out, so therefore, okay, we have to have a magic way, or, or there wasn't there a magical platform you could get as well that would just kind of follow
0: you around? Tensor's floating disc, yep. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's tons. There's tons. There's another spell that opens like a whole separate pocket dimension that you can, it's like a bag of holding, but more. Right, because otherwise they'd have to hire porters to basically follow them around and haul the gold out. Yeah, which was, in the original versions, is what you did, so and and again for me this was kind of eye-opening to read like fanzines and that from the earliest days because yeah you would have like 20 different people with their characters going into a dungeon with all of their hirelings and porters and possibly an engineer so the average group was something like 50 characters
1: you're kidding
0: no wow. but it explains why if you look if you look at early adventures, especially so like your AD&D adventures and that, there's encounters where it's like, and there's 357 orcs waiting in this area for it. Well, that was why, because you're bringing a small army into every dungeon you travel through. Right. And each person, I'm assuming each player is playing like three or four of those characters. Yeah, because again, two, you would also play your uh, typically run your characters hirelings. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. And, of course, back in those days, you'd
1: go through characters pretty quickly. Yeah. Boy, would you ever.
0: Yeah, and that's why if you look at the earliest versions of D&D, there's always, it's usually like a weird aside that people are like, why would that be there? But they talk about uh, descendants and wills and like Mm -hmm. capital gains taxes for the kingdom. Because that was one of the things that people would do is their character would be a dynasty that, their next character would be like the son or the nephew or that of the, uh, the one that just died. Huh? Yeah. And then that, that was where that discussion of like, you know, taxation would come up because you would start to get that inflation in the game that one character's literally amassing the wealth of three because Mm -hmm. they're just all being descendants. So you need some way to thin out that, that inheritance, Otherwise, again, it screws up your entire economy because after, you know, three or four characters die, now all of a sudden this one guy has 437 billion gold.
1: hmm Yeah. And uh, that would totally destroy the setting that they're in. So... Right. Y- you had to come up with some way to deal with that. Ironically enough, the way it was settled was by creating magic items that cost 337 billion gold. So therefore the players are <laughs> their, they don't destroy the local economy because they're too busy saving up in their bag of holding f- the money to buy it from the great grand wizard and then get their magic sword or whatever.
0: Yeah, there's that. There was also the idea for uh, original advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. You You had to pay for training to go up a level. Oh yeah, that's right. And essentially it didn't just that's magically what, happen. Yeah, and it would be like, I think, um, anywhere between like one and 4,000 gold per new level to go up. Wow. And that's what uh-huh. that was for. That was to, to, number one, to burn off the extra gold, mm-hmm. and number two, to cut down on the number of like, you know, billionth level characters in your setting. That makes perfect sense. And
1: that's why characters didn't just magically uh, improve in between levels. They actually had to earn some levels, then go off and actually train to use those levels properly and bring themselves up to that level. And then they could go adventuring again. Yep.
0: And that was, again, that comes out in AD&D. and d also, to that end, adds another thing that's kind of, again, the intent to keep the, the, the murder hobos down, mm-hmm. that you earn a letter code, during the mm-hmm. while you play okay based on how well you're playing your character and that letter code dictates how long and how expensive it will be for your character to go up to the next level i've never heard that before really that's yeah, one of the yeah and it's one of those rules most people never use but it's it's in there that's and now that, the letter code is supposed to reflect what
1: how big a jerk you've been basically and to whether people will work with you or not? No, it's
0: it depends. Like, if your character is a jerk, then yeah, it kind of. It's it's how well you pl- what what they define it as is how well you played your alignment, mm-hmm. and how well you played your character class. Right. So if you were like a neutral good fighter that charged to the front of every battle and begrudgingly like protected the townsfolk and stuff, you would get like an A or a B. Right. And the way it worked was, I think if you got like a D, it took four weeks of training to go up and the cost would be like 500 or a thousand gold per new level per week to go up. Okay. If you could find Mm -hmm. a trainer, because you needed a guy who is at least the next level up. If you got an A, an A meant that it took like a week, you still had to pay the cost, but you also didn't need a trainer. Right and it was it was a way again it was a way to um get away from yeah the 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 murder hobo idea the idea that mm-hmm. we're strictly a functional tactical piece killing as many orcs to get as much of their gold as possible to go up to kill more orcs
1: right yeah and
0: and again in in retrospect I think things like that got added to the game because the original gamers the first generation gamers all of that was understood mm-hmm Whereas when you got to the second ones, it was more game. And that's, again, why a lot of people never used any of those rules. They they weren't generally aware of them because they were looking at it, even the people running it, were looking at it from more tactical, game-oriented point of view.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, keep in mind that D&D and similar games back in the day were kind of our first-person shooters. <laughs> Yeah. Before first-person shooters existed. I mean, they were, you know, the characters running around having combat encounters, and that was what was fun about the game. I mean, you were you were raiding a dungeon, meant You and your buddies were rushing through that dungeon, killing stuff and taking stuff, and it, it was awesome. And you, you know, drinking liters of Coke and uh, munching <laughs> on those Cheetos and throwing dice, and, and that's what you did to kill a couple hours, you know, each Saturday night or something like that with your buddies. and. That was hell, a lot of fun. But if you think about it, most people, I don't think, wanted this deep um, setting simulator where they uh, had to actually worry about how they were affecting the local economy. No, people just want to just roll some dice and kill some shit.
0: Yeah, it it was, and it, but again, that came from the 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 new generation gamer mm. at the time, because for the original ones. The mm-hmm. reason that you had the rules that focused on the mechanics of, like, like murder and such, mm-hmm. was that was the only stuff you had to mitigate. You didn't need role-playing rules, because everybody was just kind of doing that sort of thing automatically.
1: Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Hmm. Okay. I can... I yeah. But eventually um the murder hobo element kind of leaks in and because again people just want some yucks right they don't yeah. really i mean their idea of a campaign is well how far can i take this character you know how much can i you know how much butt can i kick you know that's that's kind of it really i mm-hmm. mean and if that's what the audience wanted so that's what the game shifted to and i don't think video games helped like as uh you know video as uh as uh console RPGs eventually, you know, came out in those games, you're literally just murder hobos. That's that's what you do, right?
0: Well, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, because now you're getting at kind of where I think mm-hmm. looking at this idea becomes universally useful. Okay. Even if you're not a gamer, because what you're getting at there is, and what the people who the two and a half or third generation D&D players when they were adding more of these extra rules kind of things we're looking at was the world Mm -hmm. that you need a way to make the world itself tangible, that it's not just uh, an endless list of victims for the players to step on. Mm -hmm. Video games kind of circumvent that because the story in a video game is entirely programmed. Yes. So you can build your world and you can set things up and you can play on character motivation because it's all just given to you yeah yeah like I don't need to come up with an excuse why my group is going on this adventure. fuck it this is why you're going on the adventure it's in the opening sequence you know
1: exactly there's yeah. a great demon lord that has to be defeated yada yada
0: yeah and and you don't have a choice in this you're you're this is just what's gonna happen L- mm-hmm. like like roll with it when what what you're what you're getting at and is the thing that bothers me about a lot of science fiction fantasy settings is that a lot of games start running on automatic and people lose that kind of concern for whether there's a setting or not. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of see that start spilling into other kinds of entertainment. Right. And I think not necessarily because they're being inspired by gaming, but because the same kind of circumstances that lead to that happening in gaming are starting to happen in other kinds of entertainment.
1: Okay. Can you give us some examples?
0: Yeah. Probably the most obvious example is um, when you get to like action movies, Mm-hmm. especially if you're looking at like your typical eighties action movie where the hero acts with total impunity mm-hmm. and yeah, like nothing holds them back. There's never anything they feel guilty about. You can mm-hmm. shoot the bad guy in a crowd and not hit a bystander.
1: Well, yeah, this is definitely getting into the area of morality and popular culture where, yeah. it, that, where the idea is the hero is there to represent the audience's fantasies. So therefore, they everything they do is okay as long as they don't cross whatever line that the audience is willing to accept.
0: Yeah, and that line kind of... Uh, in a lot of cases, that line is pretty, pretty broad. (laughs) Oh, it's pretty, well, yeah, it's, yeah, it it involves a lot
1: Um, because, again, the audience has those uh, darker, unconscious uh, desires for power fantasies. You know, they want to know what it, they want to imagine what it would be like to, you know, um, to blow up that guy's car ahead of them and, or to, uh, you know, to punch their boss in the face and throw him out a window, you know, that kind of thing. And so, morally and ethically those are horrible things to to (laughs) do they they, society doesn't work very well with doing those things but they're still fun to fantasize about and so that's why they end up in everywhere and if someone stands in the way of the hero doing that that's what's called the villain yeah or just your boss well there's that too we've talked about that before where a certain point the boss became the villain and the villain became
0: the boss yeah yeah because it also it also plays into the same kind of thing gamer wise Mm -hmm. that in movies a lot of it becomes expedite Mm -hmm. that the only reason it's okay for the hero to like engage in massive amounts of property damage and that is because writing the story so that doesn't happen is way hard uh not
1: just that i mean think about with modern film if you want to go with the modern stuff the audience is there to see their big action sequences that's what they're there for i mean everything else is just like filler to fill them in (laughs) like like seriously i've actually heard that with a lot of the big hollywood ones now or you know or disney or whatever um they literally the first thing they do is they plan the action sequences and then they figure out how the character bits are going to fit in between them because the action sequences usually take the longest to set up the longest to prepare and require the most like Rendering time for CGI and makeup and all that stuff. So that's actually what they work on first, and then they eventually figure out what's going to happen in between them.
0: Yeah, there's the other catch too. That when you look at, say, modern big budget films, because they have to appeal to a worldwide audience, mm-hmm, that too, you, you need things as stripped down as possible. Yep, because cultural things don't always transfer over. Like what's funny doesn't what. What yep. means this guy is, like, serious. It doesn't all... But, you know, like, I have to run from the giant monster. That's pretty universal. Yeah.
1: The, what the, what's happened is everything's been stripped down to the most primal elements, really. Yeah. And interestingly enough, morality has kind of shifted that way, too. In a weird way, though, I would almost say movies may have actually become more moral because of the global audience. Because okay. in a lot of old world cultures, they still have very strong ideas of morality. So right. it does depend. It heavily depends. But but I would say that um, a lot of the big budget blockbusters, they will go out of their way to show the hero being like, you know, um, well, here, let me put it this way. In the 80s action movies, even the 90s stuff, the heroes would mow down people with impunity. All right. Mm-hmm. In the modern stuff, I've noticed that happens less often. Like yeah. the the heroes will often, you know, use a suppressive fire now or do other things. I, this isn't to say that in modern action movies they don't mow down dick weeds and stuff, but the makers of the film will go out of their way to turn everyone into robots or stormtroopers or whatever. So the heroes aren't really <laughs> killing people. They're just killing clones or robots or whatever, right? right. Um, they're killing, you know, faceless terrorists. Like, they're doing their absolute best to strip the morality out of it. Like, the, the, no, these heroes are not murderers because they're, not, they're really killing nobodies. Don't worry about it and everything like that. They're kind of trying to sidestep morality as much as possible.
0: Yeah, they they've always done that though. That's like in the uh, the old school, like '80s movies. The 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 hero would be all like upset because his partner died, and that was one of the reasons yeah. he did that to make them. Well, he's human; he has feelings, and then you know, like he guns down thirty thousand people and destroys them all. Like, yeah, yeah. It, but but that's my point. They
1: there'll be big disaster things, but they do their best to strip the death and consequences and context
0: out of it. Yeah, and. and Again, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, again, it's also that idea that Mm -hmm. it's being done to expedite the story. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because if if the
1: hero actually had to sit there and deal with the moral consequences of what they just did, it would just bog everything down. And you don't want the audience thinking about it either. You don't want the audience to feel conflicted. You want them to just be enjoying the ride. And so, like I said, they tend to strip that stuff out. It's like consequence-free violence. Essentially, everything is turned into G.I. Joe, the cartoon, basically. Or the old Lone Ranger Westerns. Although even those actually... No, that's actually wrong. Because the old Lone hmm. Rangers did actually, when someone was killed, often actually dealt with that as a as an actual thing. Sort of? Sort of? Maybe <laughs> I'm wrong about that.
0: No, you're, you're right, because what another kind of, of uh, workaround... Mm-hmm. Would would be is they they do that, but that would be a specific episode, right? So the episode where the hero thinks he injured a bystander would be a special episode, and then that kind of thing would go away later on. But yeah. it's it it's meant to show that no, he's like still like a feeling human being because he's upset because. You know, he thinks he wounded this kid, and then either the kid will be okay or be revealed to be an alien robot that was sent here to demoralize the hero by making him think he killed him kind of thing.
1: Not in most Westerns it wasn't, but okay, sure. Um, Yeah, that's true. Okay, uh, I mean, so, I and this actually, this is something I I did want to go back to, though. Um, Westerns, actually, since you brought them up. In a weird way, I think some of the d d murder hoboness though, does actually come out of Westerns. <laughs> like, uh-huh. think about it. The old Westerns are basically filled with, well, murder-hobos. They're milled with these, like, uh, lawless outlaws. Sometimes they're, okay, lawful outlaws, that we call them rangers, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, um, <laughs> who travel from town to town getting into gunfights with people and killing quote-unquote bad guys. And that's like that's pretty much the whole genre of westerns for quite a while there.
0: Yeah, because again, it's 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 uh, it's expedite. It kind of works the same way it does in a game that. Mm-hmm. By doing that, I can do whatever story I want because they just wander into a town where whatever it is I want to write about is happening, and then exactly. away we go.
1: Yeah, exactly,
0: and you
1: could argue that the D D players the second gen ones anyway were definitely uh tweaking onto that too i mean they they of course were people who had grown up with westerns or at least at the echo of westerns anyway yeah um because let's see if we're talking second gen they're the 80s kids well they're our generation we didn't grow up directly on westerns but there were sure enough of them around and there were tons of them in reruns when we were a kid yeah yeah I- so I, I think that we were influenced and D and D of course was influenced
0: by Westerns as well, as we've talked about in other episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. I think too that there there's a measure of it's parallel development because it's the same circumstances that made that a viable concept for the Western mm-hmm. made it a viable concept for role playing game. Yeah, that's true.
1: Well, yeah, because, I mean, we want the characters to be going from place to place each week, encountering new people. It's kind of almost a weird way to have an anthology show without having an anthology show. Yeah, that's probably the best way of looking at it, really. Which, if you think about it, for episodic television is a very natural format. It's a very because, again, you didn't know where the audience had seen any episodes of this before. This might be their first time watching it. They might have missed 10 episodes. Who knows? You can't do serial at that point. So you're just telling a different story each week. Each story is self-contained or episodic, as we say, and you need some way to keep it that way. Now, not always, though. I mean, you did have, you know, uh, Gunsmoke and Bonanza and those other Westerns where uh, they were set in one place. But in those cases, usually the story came to the characters. The characters didn't go to the story. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And, um, later on, we would a uh, evolution version of this would be called Star Trek, yeah, uh, where the characters would travel from planet to planet, and each week they'd encounter weird aliens in different worlds and things like that. That would eventually become something. and so these formulas that it like everything evolved, right? Like nothing yeah. comes out of anywhere, including murder hobos for one reason or another. <laughs> but it is interesting that I think they did evolve in popular culture in different forms. You mentioned Conan before they existed Mm. in fantasy stories and old pulp stories for a reason too. And they're almost a necessity of the, uh, of action fiction in a weird way. I'd say like they're the result of the need for the character to come up with new stories constantly, but not really to have to waste time developing a cast right or bother developing a cast so you so you just constantly have the hero move around or you just have the very limited regular cast and then the hero encounters new people all the time and i'm very certain that that probably can be traced back to way earlier than even the westerns probably we can probably go back for quite some time before we get to that right um now mind you i just have another adventuring party that we haven't mentioned probably which is of course the three musketeers Mm -hmm. but one thing i found fascinating about them is they're not murder hobos they're completely grounded in their setting they are running around and doing stuff but they're doing it as almost as usually agents of the crown or occasionally agents against the crown um but they're involved in adventures but they're still firmly rooted within the context of their environment yeah and i think that that was the case for a lot of adventure stories for a great long time until definitely some point in the mostly 20th century that kind of uh stop being the case. Okay. That's that's my guess anyway. I mean, um I admit my knowledge of uh the pulp fiction of the like the Victorian era and Af- and you know maybe until about the 40s is pretty limited, but I know some of that stuff was going on at that time. Like westerns were popular, they faded in and out over the years. Westerns were popular when the west was actually being conquered. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, And so the Western era that we know or think of as the 30s and 40s and the 50s, and that was a weird almost uh, reflection of this view of days gone by. But there'd already been a Western pop culture boom back in the actual 1860s and 70s and 80s and such. And even um, you can see some of it in uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes has, uh, there's a few stories. In fact, the very first one, A Study in Scarlet, has a section that's effectively a western, as in like right in the middle of the story. That's kind mm. of a flash. It's a flashback, basically. It's a western, western flashback story that happens in the middle. Because so you can tell that there's some popularity interest going on there. Anyway, I've diverged way off into the distance, <laughs> but but my point is, is this, is that I think the the concept of the wandering adventurer who's not connected to the landscape is not new or unique to D and D. Yeah,
0: that's that's. I think you're right too, and I think again, some of it works into D anD D because of what you're getting at. Because we yes. do have oh, yeah. older stories, uh, classics, are, and in a lot of ways, that's what, uh, shoot, Beowulf was. Yeah, yeah. Or that's uh, Gilgamesh. the The first story is basically that it's this guy and his buddy wandering around doing stuff.
1: Um. The I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation sorry but the ramanaya or ramayana or the the epic indian story basically about prince rama um Mm. is that too like the dude basically gets exiled he wanders around he meets a whole bunch of uh weird martial arts characters with superpowers he beats a bunch of them they become his buds they wander around and beat up more monsters and eventually they fight off a demon invasion that's the story of you know the great epic tale of rama in indian um more literature than mythology but yeah we'll go with that um and so it's not exactly new i mean every culture had their great wandering hero characters hercules for example the 12 labors of hercules same deal i mean they all had these great wandering heroes that did wander around so i think there might even be something um psychological where we like to imagine that there are great heroes wandering the land helping people you know, that, that maybe someday a hero will wander in and make our lives better, But you
0: know, even though our life sucks right now. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. we could be that person. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and it's also that idea of like uh, traveling to strange new worlds and stuff. That's always mm-hmm. kind of been appealing.
1: Yep. Yep, exactly. Travel to strange new worlds, meet new and interesting people, and kill them. Yeah, there take, we go. Take their stuff. <laughs> take their stuff. Kill them and take their stuff. That's the uh the, that's the gaming way. Uh, so, but what does this really say about us, the audience though, besides the fact that we enjoy our dark power fantasies? What does that really say about us that that these characters
0: have this eternal appeal? I think um I think it's 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 and I'm not gonna get too judgmental on the species over it I because I think there's a lot of different things, okay. Like, I think you're right that a lot of it's, like, the power fantasy that I've got no ties, I've got no connections, I go where I want and I do what I want kind of thing. hmm
1: Which uh, I think is a very male power fantasy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's also the idea, too, that, um, again, a lot of it kind of happens by accident. Mm-hmm. Just given the nature of, like, how stories and how different kind of genres and medium work at different mm-hmm. times. right where, like I say, the, the specifically the murder hobo thing looks like it was a big deal during a specific time of a specific type of gaming. Right. Like I said, the, the basically like your second generation D&D kind of people. Right. And that a lot of it wasn't necessarily because these were nasty, horrible, socially uh, unfit types. It was just the nature of the gaming environment they came into. That was where it led. Mm-hmm. I think uh, when you look at like I'd say movies from that era, like the action films, I think that's where you're seeing it getting into the more into like the power fantasy thing, yeah, yeah, but I think a lot of that is again because writing an action story at that point, it becomes expedite to do that, mm-hmm. and where you get a lot of eighty silliness is because. It's a lot of the 70s stuff that's become a trope. So people are doing it, but they don't exactly remember why. Mm, True. So the hero always has a partner. Oh, I'm like uh, retiring tomorrow and uh, my wife and kids are all going to Disney. Yeah, you know, this guy's not making it to the end of the intro. Oh, yeah, of course. And that, again, that used to be done to humanize the main character Mm -hmm. and to provide them uh, deep enough motivation to justify them going out and murdering a whole bunch of bad guys
1: exactly well, but, well no and it's also there to make the uh audience hate the bad guys yeah because when they uh when they gun down the partner who's just about to retire um the audience automatically like feels sorry for that dude and his family who's been mentioned and they they <laughs> hate the bad guys even more and they just their bloodlust rises and they just want the hero to just gives them some justice come on
0: come on man come on mac just give us some justice (laughs) yeah and then what happens is you know five ten years later it's just how you always do this story that Mm -hmm. context is kind of lost and then a lot of it ends up just sort of looking silly like the idea that yeah you, you you have so many of those movies that literally oh i'm retiring tomorrow that it becomes that much of a trope just because uh, I guess his partner always retires. Well, throw it in. That's how we do this sort of thing. Exactly.
1: Well, that's how they always did it. So, okay, let's just keep doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. It's sad, but completely true. Mm-hmm. All right. So, all right. So, um, let's expand this a little bit then. Let's expand our point of view and talk about are there other tro- tropes or th- things similar to murder hobos in role playing or other mediums like are is okay so the murder hobo is yeah the wandering character that goes around and has no connection to society and like kills stuff okay fine Um, is there a version of those type of fantasy characters in other uh, genres or other mediums or even
0: other role-playing things oh yeah of course there there's there's always that because like you've been been saying There's Mm -hmm. always that wish fulfillment element. Right. And it tends, because again, it's that idea of the power fantasy that I can do what I want and I'm not tied down. Mm -hmm. A lot of that becomes murder hobo-y just because those are kind of the two main components of the murder hobo. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, pretty much.
1: Well, again, the murder hobo largely seems to be a male thing. Is there a female equivalent to it?
0: I'm willing to think there is I'm not a hundred percent sure right what exactly would be because there's there's always an analog and then there's always the idea that mm. a lot of the idea the, the notions that we'll ascribe to them tend to be a little arbitrary. Right. So the traits that make a murder hobo popular are traits that we tend to ascribe to like male fandom. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like in gaming, I've known any number of female gamers that still fall into that category. Oh, I believe it. I do. Like, yeah, when you watch like movies and that, no, women like mindless violence too. It's just not something that you generally notice because it's not something that we've generally had a context for. Hmm. But I'm betting if I could bring myself to uh, watch enough "quote unquote" chick flicks and the like, there is an equivalent
1: there probably is well i think one of the confounding variables okay with uh most women's material again women and men have similarities and they have differences but Mm -hmm. one stuff that based based on the women's women's stuff that i've watched and i watched a decent chunk myself um women tend to be more uh rooted in society Mm -hmm. like they're they're they tend to see themselves more as members of society than men do Right. Like that that's just my observation. Is that they tend to think in terms of connections and relationships with other people, whereas men tend to think of themselves in connections and relationships with the world around them, and people are just part of that. Right. And so, from that perspective, um, I think that the idea of uh, a character that you know is not connected to society like that and can just do whatever they want doesn't quite work within the female psyche the same way and in fact actually i would say it probably is the exact opposite oh yeah maybe okay. it's the opposite actually i think that their version of the murder hobo is not someone who's outside of society it's someone who's at the very center of it that instead of be they don't want to be the wandering warrior they want to be the queen mm-hmm where they want the, they want to be the one who gets all the love and devotion and affection from everyone around them. Mm-hmm. that would be my take on it and this is, and you can see that even in um, even in women's action stuff, like let's take a look at some some examples. So we got uh, um the classic of course Twilight, which women couldn't get enough of. Mm -hmm. Uh, still sells like crazy what's it about what's about a woman who you know or girl whatever whose life supposedly sucks but basically everybody worships the ground she walks on who encounters her right (laughs) and everyone loves her and can't get enough of her uh you get the hunger games who again this this trodden country girl who like fights the brave against the power and becomes the entire center of their society Mm -hmm. um and that seems to be the thing right is that it's not with women it's not about being separate from society and going my own way and having the freedom they want freedom through being dominant through being the center of society right which is another form of freedom right you can either be free of society you can be um or you can be the one in control and i think their focus their focus tends to be
0: being the one in control yeah it could and under that logic then i uh, basically every character in every romantic comedy is a murder hobo yes the female version of it yeah because yeah. by the end of
1: this at the beginning of the story their life is in disarray no one likes them blah, blah 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 by the end of every rom-com the uh they have a ton of friends everyone loves and adores them and they have now become the center of a whole uh social group and movement within
0: society kind of actually a, a lot of it it works the opposite. Mm-hmm. It works oh, like you. It works like you say, but the opposite. But like you say, but the opposite. Uh. Well, thank you for making that clear, Don. I'm sure we all appreciate that. My work okay. here is done. <laughs> okay, it definitely
1: uh, get out. <laughs> but it's There'll the be a new show next week with Jack Ward as the co-host, folks. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> Jack, my agent will talk to you soon. <laughs> He's okay. like the Borg. <laughs> That's true. He is inevitable. All right. So um, besides Jack Ward being inevitable, there's our Jack Ward <laughs> reference for the episode. Um, what can uh, – okay. So how is it different yet the same but different yet the same?
0: Well, because the, the main character mm-hmm. in, in like any stereotypical chick flick – Mm-hmm is the outsider. She's not part of society because she's not conforming to their rules. And she's not either because she's not good at it or because she's like just chosen not to. Right. Yes. That's and true. and in essence, what happens is by embracing that mm-hmm. she comes to dominate society. By embracing
1: her outsiderness.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's that idea that, that that's how, she ends up getting like the guy and the great job and, and all of that by Mm -hmm. embracing her, you know, adorkableness. And then that's what gives her the thing that lets her prosper. Right. That she's the outsider and then becomes the powerful insider that rules. Of the new sphere that she's created usually. Oh no. Of, of the old sphere of the world in general. Oh, okay. It's, it's funny because it's... it's um When you look at the male version of the rom-com, what you used to refer to as a man being neutered movie. <laughs> yes. It's kind of... They kind of are both the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But they get their backwards. Because the, 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 the male version is always like the guy who has what we think is the ideal life. And then when he meets the perfect woman, it all falls apart on him. Yes, yeah. Whereas... The, the female version is the opposite, that she she kind of has the perfect life but doesn't know it. And then by the end, she does and ends up getting the guy in that. But they're both ending up in the same empty, horrible life that if that was me, I would hang myself. But, I mean, there you go. Mm.
1: On that happy thought. No, no, I think <laughs> you're right. Yep, yeah, I think you're right. I mean... um And the message in both of them is ultimately be true to yourself and embrace yourself and um, the love of your life will come to you. That's kind of the point of both of them, but Mm. they get there in slightly different ways depending on who the target audience is.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, the moral of both of them is conform and breed, but, you know, that's... Well, there's that too. <laughs> so mm. That's one of the other morals. That's very true. Which which is funny, because then if you look at, like, the true murder hobo version, which I would say is the 80s action film, mm-hmm. that's generally the moral of those as well. Wait, conform and breed is what Arnie movies are about? This is news to me. Yeah, because what, what always happens in, like, an 80s action film, while well, our overmuscular you know guy who has difficulty pronouncing english Mm -hmm. is kicking all the ass but he always has a plucky semi-competent female sidekick yep yep and they always end up together at the end yeah oh yeah so the moral of the story is yeah that the whole point of 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 and that's the wrap-up that's that's what he he quote-unquote earns
1: yes yeah yeah
0: by murdering everybody in town is that's how he gets the girl at the end that's how he proves his righteousness and then he's allowed to conform and breed like it's it's horrifying i never thought of that but that's the moral of like every damn movie ever
1: well i don't quite think it's on purpose right i think it might be a combination of subconscious and again feeding into the audience's uh uh desires and such mm-hmm. i mean because remember that when we're looking at the love interest character the character who's in the movie just to be the love interest they're supposed to represent society and they're mm-hmm. supposed to represent the character basically conforming and rejoin and joining or rejoining society at the end of the film that's what. Mm-hmm. that's because remember by getting together with them at the end they go off into their future of being part of society yeah yeah that's that's the whole point. It's it's a humanizing thing. They're there to represent the end, the victory. You know, the victory is you get to be with a hot, hot you know, a hottie if you uh, if you you know do what it takes to uh, get the job done, etc. I mean, the audience loves them for many reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, love loves that idea for many reasons. I conform and breed is not quite what I'd put on the list, but <laughs> if you put it that way, it kind of is. You're right. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it does come back to the idea of becoming part of society. So, yes, that is about becoming part of society, not living your own life, which is which is interesting, actually, because that's an, a difference between the 80s stuff and the Westerns. Uh-huh. The, at the end of every Western, at least of the, the old school Westerns, usually, the hero who accepts that he can and not be part of society because he's got blood on his hands and everything else, usually just wanders off. Yep. Come back, Shane! Exactly. The hero wanders off because, like I said, he can't really be part of society. Whereas, by the time they get to the eighty action flicks, they pretty much always do become part of society at the end, no matter how bad they've been during the movie.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a bit of that before, but I think you're definitely right that... I'm betting part of it's because, for whatever reason, that just became... The Mm -hmm. acceptable way that you did the Western. That the Western hero was always a a tragic figure, ultimately.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: And and that was part of the tragedy. They're not allowed to rejoin society. Yeah. They're an outlaw. That's the whole point. And then, because you had some of that, too, with, like, the, uh, some of the exploitation flicks in the 60s and the 70s. Half of them would go that route. Half of them would go what became the 80s route. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking because the 80s was like such an upbeat, cheerful, optimistic decade. That's why mm-hmm. that went out of flavor. Because people wanted their mindless violence and their happy ending.
1: I Are you being
0: sarcastic when you call the 80s a happy decade? Well, I'm saying that, especially at the beginning, that's how everybody perceived things. We, we know it turns into a disaster. Because basically, the only reason people had money to spend was because they were taking it out on credit. Well, yeah. But, The beginning of the decade it was all about the optimism you know the malaise was over it's morning in america you know it was all that kind of stuff
1: there was was... that stuff going on but actually the, the reality though in the 80s was a whole lot of urban decay new york was like a hellscape la was a hellscape um like there were there was a whole lot of bad going on and that's where like the 80s remember are largely a reaction to like the early 80s mind you because mm-hmm. we remember decades aren't clean so they're still dealing with the same stuff that created you know dirty harry and uh, and the other 70s action cop shows and things like that this this idea of crime running rampant in the states is still a big issue for them and urban blight and um social upheaval and all this other craps going on like so i would argue that at least in the early 80s they are still looking at Uh, fantasy films and escapist entertainment because their lives still aren't that great. It's not until we get to the mid to late 80s that you... It's interesting how the fantasy element starts to kind of break down at that point, but it's interesting that that's actually the time when they really do have prosperity. Again, due to the... um, due to credit and other things that will eventually break down in the early nineties. But there still is in the late eighties, there's still that era of prosperity and that actually like society's kind of calmed down, crimes down, you know, lives are getting pretty good again. Things look like they're on the upswing Mm -hmm. and then, then the kick in the balls will be coming a little later on. But (laughs) that's, that's not the point. The point is, is that going back to the idea that the films and the media is reflecting society that um, the early eighties stuff, Uh, where am i going with this um oh yeah i was just basically saying the early 80s stuff is escapist entertainment and they're trying to actually provide pure escapism as opposed to something that's a little grittier that's why we won't get something like unforgiven Mm. till i think it's like 91 or 92 yeah like we won't get that kind of thing until later because that's the realistic Western. Like, that's the whole point of, no... That, that In fact, you could make a very good argument that Unforgiven is the movie that killed Westerns. But that's not our topic for today.
0: <laughs> right.
1: After you've seen Unforgiven, you just can't watch Westerns anymore. <laughs> it's pretty much done at that point. Right. The, the genre is just done. Dead. I, almost, <laughs> I wonder what the Unforgiven of uh, superhero movies is going to be. Because technically it already exists, it
0: was called The Watchmen, but they made it ages ago, so it didn't really count. Yeah, because nobody cared. I think what it is for superheroes, it was a uh, Deadpool. Really? Yeah, because that was the first time that you could do your bleakness and not take things seriously, which is kind of the opposite of most superhero movies.
1: By that logic, it wouldn't be Deadpool, it would be Kick-Ass.
0: It would, but Kick-Ass didn't Really have any kind of lasting impact like Deadpool did?
1: True, because Dead
0: Deadpool like made all the money. It was like rated R, and then it leads to stuff like then they do the Joker, hmm. which is rated more R and makes more of all the money. And then yeah. I think that's why you'll you'll see that kind of. It's the same thing that happened to superhero comics in the eighties that the the deconstruction quote unquote of them is popular now.
1: Mm, I can see that. That leads to an interesting question: Are superheroes murder
0: hobos? They're murder hobos cleaned up. Yeah, actually, I would agree with that because it's it's I think it's it's another bit of um, poor world building mm-hmm. and tropism because uh, I think what ends up happening uh, to go back a little bit mm-hmm. when I say that the eighties were like uh, 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 an optimist period, I think you're right that. Especially at the beginning, there was a lot of escapism, mm-hmm. but I think early on it takes a certain term because people want to convince themselves that the hard times are over.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: In reality, they're not, but people really drink the proverbial Kool Aid and think they are, mm-hmm. and that's why you get movies like like we've mentioned before, like uh, oh, what was it? Was it Sixteen Candles, where? her family lives in this like big house and can Mm. get her a car. It's a secondhand car, but she has her own car in high school and these are the poor kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it was like the up period of like hug a nerd and the underdog was like totally winning and stuff. And Mm -hmm. you were, you were, you were seeing people had this idea that, you know, the good times were here again, even though they, they really weren't. That's where you get, like, the cleaned up kind of thing. Like, the action heroes stop being, like, dirty hairy and they start being commando. Mm -hmm. And, like, you get all the witty lines and stuff because the hero's not in any danger. Like, you can stand there and quip all you want because the bad guys aren't. If they hit you, the worst it's going to do is, like, tear the sleeve of your your suit. Yeah, that's true. And I I think what ends up kind of happening, uh, superheroes are sort of the kind of newer version of that. Hmm. Like the big superhero boom in movies was this version of the eighties, eighties action film. Right. Because again, they do the same kind of thing that it's, they're all shorthanded to the point, like i say i can have captain america show up tell a couple confused cops clear everybody down the sixth street and the cops go okay and now i can completely destroy like hundreds of buildings without fear of anyone actually getting hurt right they're really i can i can do that i just have to kind of throw a bone to give the audience enough plausible deniability that nothing's going to get in the way of the good clean wholesome mayhem
1: yep and when what i was saying earlier yeah
0: yeah, and when somebody does, which was the um, the mopey Superman film, I can't remember what that was called. Man of Steel. Yeah, where like he kills off Zod, and they make a point of showing bystanders getting injured and in, like the explosion. Everybody's like, "I don't like this movie. It's stupid." Because again, it's it's too early of a deconstruction. People are still enjoying the mindless mayhem. Yeah, yeah. That 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 again is that like '80s action kind of thing. mm Hmm. And then when, okay. you get, when you get something like Deadpool, Deadpool is the Unforgiven because it turns things on its head. It plays up all of the stuff that we've been cheerfully ignoring to, like, ludicrous levels and then makes it kind of acceptable because it puts it into a new context.
1: Hmm. Okay. That's interesting.
0: And then that's why you can do something like, say, the Joker, because now the idea of seriousness and consequence has been seeded in the mind of the superhero film watching public. Right. And it does it in, it does it through Deadpool because Deadpool lets us kind of laugh at that. Mm -hmm. It makes it an easier pill to swallow. But now once we've solved it once, now you can start the escalation.
1: Right, so you think it'll just keep escalating to something that's more and more
0: deconstructionist and bleak with time. Oh Yeah, I think you're going to see that because, again, that will be like, that's the, the, the new twist. And because we've had a couple of different films pull that off th- and make all the money doing so, that's mm-hmm. kind of where I think you're going to see people start heading. Just because, again, it's, it's novelty. Right, yeah. I can see that. I can totally see that. Yeah, and and then it'll happen for the same reason that, like we said, the uh, D&D murder hobo comes about, that it's more a product of things going on around the entertainment than anything within the entertainment itself. Hmm.
1: Actually, I think we may already have found The Unforgiven of Superhero Stories, but it's actually not a movie. It's uh-huh. a TV series. Oh, okay. Uh, it's probably The Boys. Yeah. I think The Boys is basically uh which is on Amazon Prime, I think it is. uh I haven't watched it. I've read something about it, but I haven't watched it myself. But from what I understand, yeah, it sounds like it's kind of that. Um for those who aren't familiar, basically the boys is about a a setting where like they yeah, they're superheroes and stuff, but most of the superheroes, while they publicly pretend to be um <laughs> good guys and that are complete assholes and mm-hmm. uh, mostly abuse their powers quietly in the background because they're almost like corporate sponsored and such so they want to keep the money coming so they they play nice and they play superheroes in front of the camera but they then they're constantly accidentally killing people you know mm-hmm. in the, during their adventures and such and and but they're actually not the main characters the main characters the boys are actually a group of uh vigilantes who decide that they're they've had enough and begin like working to try to take down these corporate superheroes Mm -hmm. and uh that's it's kind of a deconstruction again of the of the superhero idea and that why would someone with this much power actually why wouldn't they indulge in their fantasies why wouldn't they uh, um kill people indiscriminately why would they care especially if society needs them more than it needs um normal people when normal people just become collateral damage. And that's kind of where the boys goes. From what I understand, like I said, I haven't actually watched it, but I've read many good reviews of it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And again, I think that comes about because Deadpool was a hit.
1: I think that, yes, no question, that there's a darkly comedic element to all of these things. And I think you're right. I think Deadpool definitely made them go, yeah, okay, the public's
0: ready for this kind of thing. Let's greenlight this. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we had stories like that before, even film, but it never took off. Because, again, I don't think that idea was enough in the uh, the public consciousness.
1: Well, I think it's also a matter of just general timing. Like, yeah. the public has to be saturated in that genre and that medium before they're ready for the deconstructionist version of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, The Watchmen, for example, going back to the comic, came at the end... Well, in slash middle, whatever, of a great period of, uh, you know, the silver age and such, you know, the great era of uh, comic bookdom in a way. Mm-hmm. And it was the, for the fans, the Watchmen was this great epic deconstruction, same with Dark Knight Returns. They were these great epic deconstructions of the kind that had never been seen before. Yeah. But they were targeted at people that had grown up on the stuff that those things were deconstructing. Yeah. And that's the key, right? If you try to give someone a deconstruction of one of these things that isn't versed in it, it doesn't work. And a case in point, you could argue, is the Watchmen film they did. Mm -hmm. Because there hadn't been that saturation of superhero movies yet when the Watchmen movie came out. And so the Watchmen movie came out and people were just like, well, it's kind of weird and dark. And then it just went away, except for a few fans. Ironically, enough, superhero fans actually kind of liked it because they got it. But the average public didn't give a shit yeah so at least that's my take anyway um and i think that that might be why ironically enough they would have been better if they had waited until a point time like now to do the watchman movie or well, there is a watchman tv series i know going on right now but it's not it's not a. it's not the comic it's this whole other thing that's set in the same setting
0: yeah but it's also really popular like and again i i think because yeah it's it, true I think it's exactly what you're saying because the timing for that is better now so that's mm-hmm. why that's why the the series is doing better than the film did because yes yeah because of that timing yeah
1: exactly yeah and so although it's hard to judge like you say it's really popular well people are talking about it but I've noticed that it's one of those ones that it's really tough to say because it's got on reddit where i go in that it's got a lot of really mixed reviews like it Mm -hmm. tends to literally be one of those ones you either hate it or you love it and there seems to be a certain amount of uh how can i put this corporate persuasion going on of the ryan holiday style let's just say to (laughs) um to try to make it into a controversial hit right like, they're kind of almost pushing the controversy in social media in hopes that people will, oh, it's controversial, and they'll go check it out. That's the feeling I got when I was looking at the people discussing it and the, uh, the, the articles about it and things like that, where I don't think it's really that big a hit. Like, I don't think it is, but I think that they're really trying to push it push the idea that it is a hit or at least in the controversial hit sense anyway right but that's that's my take whereas the boys oddly enough i got the feeling it actually was kind of a hit like i think it was a more natural one i think sure they did astroturfing i'm sure they did but i could see yeah. where generally speaking no most people the vast majority really seem to like it and so they great they greenlit season two because it got seriously good numbers and people were like oh this is pretty entertaining hmm Uh, and it made people think and stuff sort of well you know it had more mindless mayhem but i I think that's part of it though (laughs) the boys is still higher on the dark humor and mindless mayhem you know quotient whereas what i understand the watchman one is really deeply intricate and very dramatic and it's apparently it's one of those ones as they say that rewards people who watch it more than once or, or are paying close attention Mm-hmm. Whereas the boys, you could probably watch it through once and you'd enjoy it, but ultimately, yeah, okay, good guys, bad guys, yeah, whatever. Right. Um. Anyway, hmm. but it is interesting. So I wonder if the fact that we're getting these superhero deconstructions right now, if that does indicate that we have reached peak superhero. That if uh that things from this point on, and I know Jack is somewhere laughing right now at this very moment because he's heard me say this probably for many years, but I still keep wondering what point does the superhero boom end or, Mm. you know, or basically peak and start to go down? My theory is, and has been for a little bit, that it peaked with uh, Endgame earlier this year. Yeah. That that's the peak of superhero-dom in media. And they'll be around for years. It's pretty much a staple at this point, I think. But I don't think it'll ever
0: reach that level again. No, at some point it will, I think, because it's it's one of those things, it's it's a fixture, so it'll change. But it'll always be there and then it'll work its way back around because eventually people will get tired of the dark deconstructionist hero stuff. And then it'll go back to like, we'll get somebody will do the equivalent of the old no, 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 Batman. And then that'll be what everybody does. And then,
1: yeah, yeah, true. No, you're you're probably right. You're probably right about that. Well, what I mean is this wave of it, I think, is probably peaked with Endgame, Um, much to Disney's chagrin. But we'll see um and yeah we'll, I, but you're right there'll be another wave there's because anything that's popular as we've talked about in many times in this podcast there are pop culture echoes that are constantly happening yeah. so you get this thing that influenced a generation well 20 years later that generation that we influenced it will do their own version of it yeah and they'll pull it out. they'll pull it back out again um this doesn't go on forever though i mean look at westerns right westerns i would argue have had probably about two echoes since Mm. their original mega pop maybe three since their mega popularity but they're
0: it's effectively almost a dead genre at this point i don't know if they're exactly dead just because again they're always part of the formula Mm -hmm. they always come back around Mm -hmm. it's that you're you're right they haven't kinda they haven't had the influence they did for, for a long time, but they're always a, like it because nothing totally goes away. The the Western sorta of became like uh science fiction. Mm-hmm. So anytime you're looking at like a Star Trek ripoff, it's kind of like a later generation Western. Oh, you've been watching The Mandalorian. <laughs> no, I've heard all about it. I was thinking about the train heist from uh from uh the one there that everybody liked. I can't remember oh, the name of the Firefly. Yeah.
1: That's the- <laughs> more than 20 years old at this point i think maybe 20 whatever but you're right no no no. and i mean mm-hmm.
0: but the the literally is a,
1: it's a space western it's, yeah a, it, it absolutely is and and people are praising it as a space western so in in a weird way yeah, science fiction westerns became the way to do it because people kind of don't seem that interest in the original version right now maybe it will come back at some point maybe you know period westerns will come back but uh It's easier to just dress it up and or do something like there's a Kung Fu Western called Into the Badlands that exists as well. Right. That people are like uh, rather fond of. It's got a real niche following. I mean, so we do see it, but it's more hybridized now with other things.
0: Yeah. And again, I think it'll come back around. I was um, just Mm -hmm. going through the old uh, like Deadlands role playing game. Mm hmm. And I could easily see that that becoming like because the game was crazy popular. It was that it becomes something that somebody who was a fan of the game and another like five ten years goes. We should do like a TV show of that, and then it comes back. But then when it comes back, everybody loves this like crazy new thing that's actually thirty years old, and then that becomes western become a thing. But they become that horror western sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, I could totally see. Um, just not too long, just you know, what a decade or so ago, there was that other game, uh, Red Dead Redemption, and everything yep. like that. Horror westerns are just uh, are another major genre, almost waiting to happen, basically.
0: Yeah, and and like I say, it's it's video games. I think there's been a couple. There was another another uh, like western themed adventure game that was pretty popular too. I can't remember what it was. Hmm, November not as popular. Not as popular as Red Dead Redemption. But yeah, but again, that moved to like the video game thing. So again, they're always still there. It's just you got to wait for somebody to do the thing that becomes a mega hit, that then that's what everybody does for the right. next yeah. little bit.
1: Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally. All right. So is there anything else that we can say about uh, murder hobos then and about this, this idea? Or have we kind of plumbed the depths on this one?
0: There's actually a couple of weird things because you have to remember. Okay. When you get as powerful a a, a trope as the murder hobo, mm-hmm. there's other tropes that follow from that. Okay. And this is where I say, I think you kind of, in st- for storytelling in general, when you get something like that that becomes established, it kind of leads to other problems. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things, if you've got like the, the stereotypical d d murder hobo. Mm-hmm. That means you also now have a proliferation of the stereotypical, evilly evil villain. Uh Uh-huh. That's true. And and that leads to other things. Because again, it becomes more, again, more of a simplification again. Right, yeah. And that was where you got the idea, like we talked about in uh, old school D&D, all orcs are chaotic evil. Because then that makes it okay to break into their house and steal their shit. Yeah, that's true. You have to reduce everything to black and white,
1: otherwise the murder hobo are a villain. Yep. So the uh, so as you said, evil evil. The villains have to be twice as bad to to justify the murder hobo doing
0: what they do. Yep. And I would say like some of that when you get to other forms of entertainment, in that mm-hmm. some of that comes around in weird ways because it's it's like we were talking the action films mm-hmm. and the exploitation era the villains always did things that warranted their brutal murder at the hands of the hero. Mm -hmm. There was an ecology to this. There was, there was a reason, but eventually when you get to a certain point, like when you get to commando, it becomes a trope that it's just the thing you do. There's no real context for doing it anymore. Nobody remembers why we're doing it. It's just, that's what we do. Right. Yeah. And then when you start doing that, then you get all the other tropes that have to follow from that. Mm-hmm. Uh okay, we've already makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've already mentioned the sidekick who uh it's my last day before retirement. Yep. That becomes another thing. And it comes out of it because I need a way to make the hero really sympathetic and to justify him losing his shit right off the bat. Well, they murder his like friend and or family. Mm-hmm. But then, like I say, everybody just falls in line. That's one of my my leading jokes in movies, is that like any character charles bronson played should just have a disclaimer don't marry this guy yeah yeah so just in like the death Wish series alone i don't know how many wives he goes through <laughs> yeah
1: that's true he's a walking death trap you would think that actually he's the most immoral character in the movie because he keeps marrying these women and they keep getting killed <laughs>
0: Yeah, you'd think yeah, that's true. At some point, you would wonder. Well, but then again, that becomes a trope in and of itself, right? Right. But I love you. You don't want to get involved with a man like me. But I still love you. Okay, let's get married. Oh, no, they killed my 19th wife. What'll I do? <laughs> so... Right. It's yep. Yep. like, mm-hmm. well, and, and then that leads to, like, all kinds of, like, weird kind of silliness, because that becomes... The world unto itself, eh? Mm-hmm. Then it's that thing that people stop thinking about, well, why does it what would happen if this was the case? It's another classic um to that end is is we keep mentioning murder she wrote. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why do people keep dying around this woman? You know? Yep.
1: Yeah, at what point do the cops just say, you know, the common factor in all these murders is her? <laughs> so but you know for it's again it's a trope and we have to just kind of accept it that uh yeah she's not suspect number one because uh we need a series to keep going Mm -hmm. so the cops (laughs) just automatically write this little old lady off not not not, never thinking that she might be secretly manipulating everything in the background right to cause all these murders (laughs) that you know, there's a reason why Cabot Cove is the murder capital of North America during the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and, and only has, like, two cops. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> two mostly incompetent cops who she's constantly feeding in every episode. Mm-hmm.
0: To keep them drugged, man. To keep if them, I'm not to keep them quiet and passive. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, isn't one of them Howard Cunningham? Yes, he is. Okay, yeah, that's kind of... But didn't he die? Like in Happy Days, doesn't
1: uh, doesn't Richie's pop die at one point because they wrote him out of the show or something? Ah, uh, I don't think the I don't think the dad does. I could have sworn that the dad dies at some point, and that like at the very because at the very, end, like towards the end, like the last season, I thought he didn't want to actually be part of the show anymore, and so he, he went out. Okay, I'm gonna look it up right now while we chat. Okay, I know For that happened second. with uh, Richie. Richie died, didn't die, did he? No, no, they wrote him out. They wrote him out, okay. He joined the army. Yeah. Okay, so let's see. Uh, Howard Cunningham, of course. Tate played by Tom Bosley. Um, created by Gary Marshall. Uh, let's see. Oh, He is the only one of two characters, the other being Fonzie, to appear in all 255 episodes of Happy Days. And to remain with the cast for 11 seasons of -hmm. the two, Howard is is the only one to have also appeared in the pilot. Wow. So I was totally wrong. No, he's there from the very beginning to the very end. Mm -hmm. Wow. I had no idea. Because, yeah, Richie, yeah, I'd forgotten. So I got got the confused then that uh, it was Richie that got written out. Wow. I had no idea.
0: Yeah, Richie and uh, Ralph, right? I th-
1: yeah, don't they get replaced by almost clones of themselves, basically?
0: Ah, uh, I'm kind of go back. I'm not a big sitcom guy, but when I, they leave, and they added, um, it became mostly Fonzie for forever, actually. Right. But those two left, it was Potsy and, um, Richie's wife, mm-hmm. who for some reason, yeah. Laurie yeah, Beth. yeah. Lori Beth, who didn't, who hadn't gone for, for that. And eventually they added, um, it was another cousin cause that mm-hmm. was, uh, Crystal Bernard played him. And then the, uh, the second husband on, uh, of the neighbors on married with children was another, another character that they added. That was kind of like, um he was the straight-laced dude who became sort of Fonzie's understudy. And right. then the, those two became kind of more of the uh, more of the focus of the show. Right, yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay. Because the show ran for like what was it, 11 like seasons yeah like it, it went on forever so you gotta kind of find ways to freshen it up as best you well, can
1: well exactly and had going back to our earlier discussion had one two three four five six seven eight eight spin-offs
0: mm-hmm.
1: wow and i don't even think any of those <laughs> include the animated ones
0: yeah because nobody wants to talk about those yeah <laughs>
1: uh what, oh wait sorry no laverne and shirley in the army was actually an animated one. Oh yeah okay so no some yeah. of these are actually animated ones i apologize three of them are animated ones so actually okay. there's only five one two three four five live action ones and then three animated ones Fawns and the right. happy days gang laverne and shirley in the army and the mork and mindy laverne and shirley Fawn's hour mm-hmm. which go back to our uh scooby-doo episode folks and uh it'll explain a lot of that <laughs> The
0: one I've well, never heard is, I'm sorry. it is... It, it'll, it'll bring up a lot of that. It's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> the one that I'd never heard of
1: before, where there were, apparently were two that were called... One was called Blansky's Beauties. Yeah.
0: Which was a spinoff, which I don't remember at all. It was a sort of barely spinoff. That was the one that was like a modeling agency, wasn't it?
1: I think so. Let's see. Uh, he was introduced in the episode Happy Days... Set in the fifties, but the show was set in the present day of nineteen seventy-seven.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. There's a couple that were just
1: really loose spin-offs. Very, very loose. Spin-offs. Okay, Nancy Walker played Howard Cunningham, the guy we were mentioned earlier, visiting cousin Nancy Blansky from Las Vegas. Okay, in an episode of Happy Days, they liked it so much. It was basically it was about Vegas showgirls. Okay. Yeah. Okay, it was about Vegas showgirls and such. They we're running a uh, chaotic apartment complex where the showgirls lived. She's the den metter. So it's basically like the facts of life, except they're showgirls in Las
0: Vegas. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, got it. That that, that makes total <laughs> sense, I guess.
0: Because there were other ones that were supposed to be spinoffs that I don't think they did. Because mm. the one with Fonzie's Guardian Angel was supposed to be a pilot for another show, but I don't know if they made it. Right.
1: Probably well, who knows? They might have made the pilot, but then they just thought, "Yeah, no," and that yeah. was that. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Now, and remember, there's also contract stuff behind the scenes and all other weird stuff. But anyway, we should probably get back to uh, the point. So, okay, anything else mm-hmm. we want to talk about about um,
0: about Murder Hobos? Then, well, it's 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 again. I think the the biggest thing is it became. A symptom of not having thought out your background very well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or purposely trying to avoid it. I mean, you could
1: argue that the murderer hobo thing is a feature, not a bug. Yeah, that's true. I mean, especially if the audience loves it, why is it bad? I mean, you know, how many episodes of Fist of the North Star are there? Uh, and he, and he's literally a murder hobo. Like, literally they, you, you can't li- literally. they might as well call that show
0: Murder Hobo, the series. And it, that's what it is. I've, I never thought of but I think Kenshiro is the ultimate murder hobo. That's exactly right. He is. And so it's literally every
1: episode is literally him <laughs> just murdering people. That's all it is
0: it really is
1: <laughs> wow yeah. his catchphrase you were already dead see <laughs> That's, that just adds to it yep there we go I mean so it's not a bug exactly the audience loves it uh, if mm-hmm. if it's presented right and so I, I again it comes back to what kind of story are you trying to write like what's the story you're trying to tell who's your audience what are you trying to do with this thing yeah, and audiences love murder hobos they love the male version they love the female version they love this stuff and so why would you bother doing something different but but that's why it's good to consider the whole concept of the murder hobo because if you understand that that's what these characters are that this type of trope exists then you can do something different right yeah and then you can do something different like um having a character that actually does have a family and is connected to society and things like that. You can be aware of what makes them different than a murder hobo.
0: Yeah.
1: Or maybe the the story is actually about the characters I don't know, um running uh running a cheese factory or something. Well, that's fine, <laughs> but yo, know, that's again, they're connected to society, they have their place, they're they're not free to wander around, but they're still doing interesting things in their own way. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that uh, what was i sorry lost my train of thought there Hmm? um but anyway but it's important to know what is a murder hobo just for the sake of knowing how it affects things now that's also the reason why i'm going to say murder hobos are not going to go away anytime soon (laughs) right i think that they're going to continue to be a fantasy staple for a very long time the only thing that i can possibly see believe it or not hurting the whole idea of the murder hobo might actually be video games. Okay. And this is where I'm going to go a little on the limb here, but bear with me for a second. Okay. So, because almost all video game characters, okay, especially uh, role-playing video game characters, role-playing in quotes here, are basically murder hobos, okay? So the audience is getting their fill of murder hobos through video games in session, the vicarious throw being a murder hobo, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Well, they may not want that from their other forms of entertainment. They okay. may actually go, well, okay, I'm getting all the murder-hoboism, you know, getting off on this <laughs> as best I can from video games. I kind of like something different. Mm-hmm. And so I could see other kinds of stories where the character is more attached to society or is a part of a group or things like that that can't be represented in video games or, can be, or don't represent the murder-hobo trope actually becoming popular in a way because they represent that human connection, especially in an era when people are becoming more and more disconnected from each other, thanks to technology, among other things, Mm -hmm. it's becoming harder and harder for people to actually just have meaningful conversations with other human beings without constantly being distracted by their screens or having to do it through their screens or whatever. Right. Right. People are desiring more and more actual human contact. Well, or simulations thereof. and the murder hobo ideal represents a detached version of society whereas i could see people wanting something that's more uh connected instead Mm -hmm. that said isekai which we've talked about recently a bunch um are still basically murder hobo stories for the most part I mean, you know, the character gets plucked in from outside the world, given godly powers, and set loose on a fantasy setting where they where they basically remake that setting as they see fit. Right Now, the only thing that might be a difference that I do notice about the isekai, though, is pretty much they almost always start with the character creating a, going back to the slightly more feminine version, basically creating a social circle, which is like altar harem, basically, um, oh. that they that are now a little society within the society and then it's mostly about protecting that and making that grow and uh nurturing their little harem society and whatever else so in a weird way the fantasy is still about connecting with other people like this is the yeah. thing where the, the the japanese isekai characters should be murder hobos but many of them not all are not not exactly mm-hmm um to to go into what we've talked about in some other episodes but within the last year or two the chinese characters on the other (laughs) hand are total murder hobos like they make kenshiro look um um like a slacker basically it's like Mm -hmm. yeah how many thousand people am i gonna kill this time it's like wow okay they literally are just characters that wander from place to place getting more powerful and killing more people Mm-hmm. that's literally what the Chinese, like the Chinese ideal character is the murder hobo. Like they really right. are. They <laughs> just absolutely dominate the, the Shansha stuff and the Chinese like web fiction, murder hobos all around. Huh. huh? That really is their, that's their thing. Whereas the Japanese seem to want, you know, more of the collectivist, you know, they want, they they're missing. They want that connection. So again, it yeah. reflects what the audiences want. And, I gotta comment the Chinese stuff is because of that universalness of the murder hobo, I guess, it does pretty well. It's been doing pretty well online. Web fiction just keeps getting more and more popular. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. We'll see whether the Japanese approach of uh murder hobo light or
0: the Chinese uh approach of murder hobo extreme becomes more popular <laughs> with time. Well, 'cause it, it it seems like what they're doing is they're kind of following the uh the history that gaming did. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that like the, the Japanese stuff Mm -hmm. is like your third generation D &D. and D because of a lot of the isekai, it's not, it's not just about the character. It's about the effect they have on the world Mm -hmm. that the focus is, is on the world more than, than than the character or more than it would have been in earlier stories. Whereas the Chinese stuff is Mm -hmm. still your, your second edition, like your second generation. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's about the character and it's about how massive can the character get? Yeah. Yeah. That's literally it. Yeah. How massive
1: can this character get? Mm -hmm. Can their muscles get? How many people can they, you know, off? Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's about running the numbers, which all things considered makes perfect sense because the chinese um in terms of their fiction and pop culture fiction such are several steps behind the japanese Mm -hmm. although we may get death threats for me saying that but unfortunately (laughs) it is true like the japanese were doing these kinds of stories in the 70s and 80s and 90s whereas the chinese weren't really free to start doing this kind of stuff until uh the 2000s when web fiction kind of opened up that venue yeah prior to that all media had to be remember government approved in china and such and so it was all heavily censored and they didn't do things that were they thought were disruptive to public morals yeah and so the chinese uh literature scene and culture scene was much more limited and they've just kind of exploded into it now so when you say like they're more like the second or generation guys you're very much correct i'd say Mm-hmm. They're just really exploring that for themselves for the first time. Whereas the Japanese already did it back in like the the 80s and yeah. 90s to some degree and such. So now we're seeing the reflections of that where it's more about connection once more. Mm-hmm. The Chinese presumably, if it follows the evolution, will eventually get that way too. People will get tired of the, the murder hobo approach and they'll want stuff that's more intricate and a little more connected. And it's about finding your place, really is about having a place in society not just mythically searching for one, but actually having a place and doing something with that. Mm -hmm. Huh. I'd never really thought about it that way exactly in those terms, but I think that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. Hmm. All right. I think that's probably a good spot to end unless there was anything else you wanted to say. No, That's
0: about it. Just remember to dig your pits more than 10 feet deep. And how about putting spikes at the bottom? that works it shortens the depth but the spikes add a a, a classy touch i think i think so too <laughs> i definitely think so too all right
1: so remember audience you too could become a murder hobo victim unless you prepare <laughs> or you strike first good night folks thanks for listening to the show